0: Today comes from uh, 1 Peter, 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 John, John, Jude, Revelation, seventh, last book of the New Testament, uh, reading from verses 3 to uh, 13. Praise be to the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy has given us new birth into a A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, even though you are not do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke before the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with great care and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings in Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels look into these things. And praise God for his word today.
1: Well, we're going to continue Continue with the reading from verses 13 to 16, all right? So let's continue. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it freely in this country. We pray that your Holy Spirit will empower us to understand this word and to practice your word in our lives. Lord, I ask for your blessings for me as I preach your word to your precious people. Would you forgive me my sins and use me as an instrument in your hands? In Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, the uh, big news item in the sporting world this past week was about the cycling champion, Lance Armstrong. Now, I like to take my bike out for a ride, but I know that there are some very serious, serious bike riders in this church. I mean, I might struggle cycling up uh, Surrey Hills uh, on Warrigal Road, but I know that others are very fit and able to do so. I also know that some people in the congregation here, in the church here, are very interested in cycling. And the big news item, sadly, this past week, was about Lance Armstrong, who was found using drugs. What a sad situation for him and the cycling world. As a result, the 19, uh, from 1999 to 2005 tour uh, for France races will have no winners, no winners attributed to them. Lance Armstrong has been stripped of all the medals. And his name will effectively be erased from the books of cycling history. I watched with sadness uh, that press conference, with sadness. Because it is a sad end in the sporting life for someone who is well-respected and who has perhaps trained so hard and worked so hard to come to such a tragic end. So the question is, does it matter the way we live our lives? Does it really matter? We can all start well. It's one thing to start well. It's another thing to finish well. We can all start a race. It's another thing to actually finish the race. Does it really matter how you and I live our lives? Well, we're going to look at this topic this morning, holy living. Does it matter? Does it matter? Who really cares? That's the question, isn't it? Who really cares about holiness today in our own lives and in this world? Well, the Apostle Peter, this is going to be our text this morning, says this, Therefore prepare your minds for action, 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 to 16. Be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But, as, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Uh, Peter says, Therefore, let me uh, recap, uh, because this word, therefore, Peter connects us with what has been said in the preceding section. We know that. As believers in Christ, we can rejoice because God has called us to himself. He has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yes? Amen to that. He has given us a living hope. We can rejoice. Our faiths will be tested by various trials. It will be refined like gold. But in the end, it strengthens us. It makes us strong. It makes us committed to see God's plan being made manifest in our lives. And it strengthens us in the end because we know that our God will carry us through every trial and every testing that comes our way. And we have a glorious future which includes for us an imperishable inheritance that God has kept for us that one day we will enjoy to the fullest. We see this, we saw this last time a few weeks ago. We have an inheritance kept in heaven that is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It is unfading. And Peter is not teaching us that suffering is good in itself. There will be pain in the midst of our suffering, but there is also going to be joy. And the ultimate joy of that is the inheritance that is ours, kept by God in heaven for us, His people. And then further, we noted also that we have a great Savior, a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has given us a living hope from the dead. The ascension of Jesus Christ into the right hand of the Father means that Christ is now doing a work for you and for me, for God's people all over the world. And that is that he is interceding on your behalf and mine with the ascension of Jesus and his intercession. And then we know through scriptures that Jesus Christ will one day return. Yeah? Amen. He will one day return. And that's going to be a great and a glorious moment for all of us to rejoice. And then Peter says this, that we have the praise, glory, and honor that God will give to us, a threefold tribute that God gives to those who continue on in that journey. And then we have this inexpressible and glorious joy. And this message, Peter said, is this, that it has come by the prophets. The prophets, they prophesied the grace to come, they searched, they investigated, they were keen to find out about this plan, and even angels longed to look into this salvation. I uh, recall mentioning this passage, Luke chapter 2, the angels were there with the birth of Christ. And the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. So within this context within this incredible context of what god has done and what god will do for us in the future the apostle peter says therefore do something now in response to god's grace to you and to me so live in response of the fullness of grace isn't that amazing this is what god has done for you now he has blessed you with incredible blessings He has given you a living hope because you were dead in your sins. He's given you an incredible inheritance that is kept in heaven. He has given you an inexpressible joy that has filled your heart. And now he says, in response to everything that God has done. Therefore, live your lives now in response to that grace. And Peter says this, it's a massive challenger in this passage. I don't think it's an easy passage. We can read it. But I think living it is a massive challenge, right? Okay, I think living out this passage is a massive challenge to be holy. All right. So Peter says uh, there's threefold action here: gird up the loins of your mind, be self-controlled or sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, gird up your loins, the loins, gird up the loins of your mind. What does this tell us? So this call to action is in keeping with the journey metaphor Peter employs throughout, having already addressed this epistle or the letter to the pilgrims of the diaspora. Often along the journey, pilgrims must be encouraged to pick up their pace. And in the first century context, both men and women wore long flowing robes. And when they needed to pick up pace, it would involve tucking up one's tunic or robe, girding up, so to speak, so that you can run and walk faster. Now in Sri Lanka, I used to wear what they call a sarong. I have one at home and I haven't worn it much in Australia, I must say, but when I was growing up as a young guy, I always wore this long sarong. It's nothing new in Sri Lanka. And I tuck it up here and put it here, and I used to fold it up when I needed to run. I always run around with this sarong. I must say, it's quite a nice garment actually. Wouldn't it be nice one day to wear it on a Sunday and come here, right? Eh? A sarong. Wouldn't want to tuck up the sarong, but certainly it would be nice to wear it one day. But this, this kind of long robe that people used to wear, they used to pull it up so that they could run. And for example, even soldiers, when they had this long tunic, they tuck up that tunic, belt it with, uh, put it under their belts so that they're ready for action. They're ready for war. And Peter uses this metaphor to challenge the readers to prepare their minds for actions, for action. And Peter speaks about the mind. Why the mind, friends? See, the English word neutetic or neutic comes from the Greek word nous, which is often translated as mind. And with the entrance of sin into the world, the entire human person, including all of our faculties, are affected by sin. Our minds are fallen, and our very ability to think has been seriously weakened by the fall. Uh, Adam, the first person creator, would have had an in- incredible sharp mind. Uh, his IQ level before the fall was perhaps off the charts. <laughs> right? A massive IQ level. But he lost the, the capacity to rationalize well with his mind when he fell into sin. He lost it. Now, I must say this. Though we have fallen, it does not mean that we no longer have the ability to think, right? As Christians, we ought to exercise our minds. Uh, those students who are studying for your exams, you're going to exercise your mind big time this coming few weeks, right? You are studying hard. You're exercising your mind. You're training your mind. You're thinking, I hope. You're trying to work out this thing This science subject, this English exam that you're going to do. Whatever it is, you're exercising your mind. So we do spend a lot of time doing physical training, right? Uh, I don't know, I mean, if you go to the gym, maybe there are, I I do know some people go to the gym. Uh, I was there last week, I must say, boy, oh boy, I struggled. (laughs) I struggled to do those weights. And my son is so good at pushing his father. Come on, dad, you can do it. 30 kilos, ah, man, I'm struggling here. You see, we go to the gym because we want to be fit, we want to work hard, we want to get that heart rate going to 140, whatever. Anyway, doesn't matter, right? I want to be pumped up, training our physical bodies. What about our minds? What about our minds? How do we train our minds? As ours is a spiritual journey, people, Peter calls upon Christians to gird up intellectually. To gird up our minds is to have a healthy mind that is driven by a passion to honor God as Christians and to bring glory to God in our lives. That is the goal, my dear friends, of the gospel. That's the goal of the Christian life is to bring glory to God in our lives. To gird up our minds is to have a healthy mind. And when Peter refers particularly to the loins of one's mind, loins signifying the source of vitality, he is calling upon us to harness not merely some strength of mind, but the core of our intellectual powers for the faith. Girding up our minds is vital for the pursuit of holiness. We are brought back to this inseparable pair of knowledge and godliness Holiness, as we gird up our minds, simply put, someone said, a slack, undisciplined mind will not produce godliness. A slack, undisciplined mind will not produce godliness. To rationalize, to understand the issues of life from a God-given perspective, no wonder the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in view of what? God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? And then you will be able to test and approve. Now, Asi Sproul, um, writing, uh, he says this about this uh, whole aspect of uh, mind and life. Christians are called to, to be uh, light of the, to the world, to show a more excellent way, dedicating our lives to the glory of God. We have to relearn things from a new perspective. We need new values. We need to train our minds so that we begin to think God's thoughts after Him. I'll come to some practical things later as we move on. See, thinking about these things, new values, new challenges, Because you're a Christian and you start thinking differently. do you see that? Because when you start thinking differently, you start acting differently. Your lifestyle is going to change. It's going to do a complete turnaround. So the best way to help our minds function in the way that honors God and glorifies Him is to get into studying this word as well. Applying and knowing this word in our lives. To have the wisdom that comes from this word. As it impacts our minds, it will impact my life. It will impact my outlook. It will impact my lifestyle. Now, my dear friends, we know that the decisions we take in life do have consequences. Lance Armstrong decided to take drugs. He had to pay a severe consequence for that. Right? We know that the decisions we make in our lives will have long-term consequences. Example, if you're thinking of going out with a non-Christian, it's a matter that you have to deal with, right? You know God's Word tells you something? Are you going to do something completely different? We can't be legislating here for anyone. right? But you need to make up your own mind before God. Your mind, thinking, acting, responding, How does this fit in with God's plan? How does this fit in, for example, with God's plan for my life, for my present life, and for the future? Who do I hang out with, perhaps, in my life? How does that impact my Christian lifestyle? We've got to work these things through. It's not easy. It's a massive challenge. The career that you choose in your life will have an impact on, on how you're going to live your life here on earth. The way we handle our money is the gifts that God gives to us. The way we use our very lives to serve God. And Peter says, prepare for action. And then he elaborates. The word used here, says, be self-controlled or be sober-minded. The word that is used here literally means not to become intoxicated, not to get drunk. Now that's the word. But applied here, it has the meaning of not getting drunk, with the influences of this world. Be sober-minded. John MacArthur has a good uh, spell on this one. He says this, Sober-mindedness is the idea of spiritual steadfastness, of spiritual control, of clarity of mind, of being in charge of your priorities, of having discipline of heart, discipline of mind, balanced life that is not intoxicated with the various allurements of the world around us. It is a well-disciplined life. Hard work, isn't it? Right? It is hard work. A well-disciplined life. Wow. Sober-mindedness has the idea also of being self-controlled. It says this, basically to have self-control means that we behave in a manner appropriate to the given situation. It means we differ when it is appropriate to differ. It means we speak when we need to speak. It means that we control our tempers and do not blow up every time things do not go our way. It means that we ignore the minor mistakes of others instead of trying to prove that we are always right. Do You see that? Do you get a temper tantrum when things don't go our way? See, so we ought to think with clarity and act appropriately by keeping our minds alert, by guarding our minds from the temptations and the influences that always come our way. It is exercising clear judgment. And Peter continues to show us further how this should be worked out. He says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. What's Peter saying here? You are now children. See that? As children. You are a child of the true and living God. God has made you His child. And He has brought you from darkness to light. You were ignorant in the past. You didn't know these things. But now you have no excuse. That's what He's saying. Your life has been changed. You are now a new creation. Do you get that? The old as... Past and the new has come. And God has done this. He has taken you and he has given you a new life. Wow. And he has given you a new heart. And he has given you a new vision. And he has given you a new meaning. And he has given you a new purpose for living. This is what God has done. So as a child, Peter now addresses them as obedient children. Now as parents, come on parents, don't be struggle with this issue of telling our children to be obedient. Now, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? Why have you not done that? The list goes on, isn't it? And we want our children to be obedient in the Lord. And Peter is saying, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you once lived in. Forget it. Clean cut. You can't have your, your, your foot in both camps. Part of the world and part of Christianity. Either you've got to choose and make either Christ is our Lord or is not. I, I, I'm not saying I've got it all made. Please don't get me r- r- wrong here. I struggle with it, okay? It's a massive struggle. It's a massive issue. Because the temptations are out there, isn't it? The temptations for us, for our minds to be corrupted is there. It is right there in my office. It is right there in my computer. When I put the jolly thing on, it is there. There is opportunities for me to to get caught up in everything, in the pornographic thing, in the gossiping thing, in everything that can go on. It is there. And as young people, you might be out there and you might be facing the peer pressure of doing things that you would not want to be doing. And it's, it's completely against God's plan for your life. But you're deliberately chosen to do it. And you will have to face the consequences. right? Just as I would have to do it as well. So this holiness thing is a good thing. <laughs> because God wants the best for you. He wants the best for us. And that's what we're going to see here as obedient children, trusting and knowing this God, this Father who loves you with an amazing love because once you were ignorant, you did not know the Lord, you did not have values that kept Christ at the center, but now our values have changed. We lived in spiritual darkness. The gospel has transformed our lives. Has it? Has the gospel of Jesus transformed your life? Um, Jerry Bridges, this guy, is a, he's a great writer actually he's written this, uh, it is the gospel that continues it is the gospel that continues to remind us that our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God but upon what Christ has done, did for us right? and Jerry Bridges speaks about this gospel-driven sanctification when he discusses this aspect of sanctification now, this word sanctification sounds very big it's basically mean to be made holy Right? And he speaks of two kinds of sanctification. He talks about a definitive sanctification, that is, when you become a believer, when you become a believer, you are made holy, like that. Right? That is the gospel of grace. You are saved by grace, through faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. The great Reformed teachings, right? The Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. And when you become a believer, Jesus takes all your sin and he puts it upon himself and he declares you righteous and you are made holy. Definitive sanctification. Bang! But then he also speaks about another sanctification and that is progressive sanctification. That is, along the way, along the way this Christian journey, we sin, we fall, we mess up, We make mistakes. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we are so ashamed of. Right? It happens, doesn't it? Is there anyone who can claim sinless perfection here this morning? Don't raise your hand, please. Come and see me afterwards. (laughs) I like to know what a secret is. Because I haven't achieved it. Right? See. The gospel of Christ as tra- transforms, but it's a progress. It's a work in progress. And this involves a desperate, by difference, it involves a desperate dependence on Christ for the power to do these things. For we cannot grow in holiness by our own strength. We cannot do it by our strength. As Jerry Bridges writes this, we must always keep focused on the gospel Because it is in the nature of sanctification that as we grow, we see more and more our sinfulness. Instead of driving us to discouragement, though, this should drive us to the gospel. It is the gospel believed every day that is the only enduring motivation to pursue progressive sanctification, even in those times when we don't seem to see progress. That is why I use the expression, gospel-driven sanctification. That is, That is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. When is the last time you stood in front of the mirror and preached the gospel to yourself? And uh, your people in the house go past the bathroom and say, what's going on there? Are you okay? You don't need to stand in front of a mirror. You can do it all the time. Preaching the gospel to ourselves will show us our sinfulness and it will show us Christ. That's the progressive sanctification. You see, this, this living this holy life is not of works. It is not of legalism. Holy living is not legalism. I must say this. It's not something that burdens you with the law. That is that you keep whacking yourself or your family members with the commandments and making them and you feel miserable and guilty and terrible. That's not what it is. None of us have kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. Only Jesus did. It is not following a set of principles that can make you holy. Wow, I followed ten principles of so-and-so's, whatever, and I'm now holy. It doesn't work that way. It is not some kind of individual holiness that in fact causes you to be an odd person that cannot connect with ordinary people because you're coming across as somebody who is Absolutely holier than thou. Can't talk to you. I'm holier than you. See that? And, and, and your friends and other people look around you and think, man, what is that specimen there? How do I connect with that person? Oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah? Boy, boy. No, no. We are called to be the salt and the light in this world, right? people need to see me just as I am. I don't need to put on this holiness thing and go, man, I'm holy today. Right? It doesn't work that way. Right? It is part of our, our very being as a believer in Christ. God has made us holy, and we are living out that holiness. Yes, now, certainly, when you take a stance for Jesus, yes, it will cause you conflict. Yes, you must make a decision not to be joined with the issues of this world. That is for sure. But at the same time, friends, we need to keep the balance. Um, This guy, John Sartre, is a a great writer. He's written this book, uh, the author, What, What Christian Parents Should Know About Infant Baptism. He says this, This view of individual holiness has caused Christians to live hesitant and dull lives. Somehow we have come to think that holiness is limited to an affinity for prayer and Bible study. No, nothing wrong with that. Please don't get me wrong. However, there are things in God's creation that we should love with a passion. Music. Do you love music? The mountains. Fishing. I love fishing, but the only time I caught a fish was when I went to some farm in Bright. In Bright, in Bright. It's the only time I had success. I uh, went fishing once in Portland and never had any success. I felt like stopping by a fishing, uh, some shop and buying some fish and bring it home, but it worked. Anyway, your passion for music, like mountains, fishing, concerts, games, physical exercise, food, dancing, plays, literature, marriage, having children, business, teaching, banking, school, traveling, the beach, wow, the beach, friends, astronomy, biology, and the list is endless. So, so holiness incorporates all of these things. You see that? It incorporates all of it. It's a matter, I say, of the heart, ultimately, because you can't see my thoughts, can you? I'm standing here, but I can't see your thoughts. But God does. It's a matter of the heart. Holiness begins with a transformed heart that God does from within. <laughs> And it gradually changes and fashions my thinking, my life, my lifestyle. Progressive sanctification. A work in progress. So, gird up our loins, minds for action, by being sober minded, by fixing our hope fully on the grace to be revealed. That's why we sang one of the, the hymns that we sang, Take Time to Be Holy. It talks about a holiness that's constant in our lives. So, does holiness matter? Well, friends, it does matter, right? It certainly does matter, right? Because it says this But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Friends, the Bible presents God as being holy, absolutely and fundamentally a holy God. God's holiness is the very essence of his being. God's justice is his holy justice. God's wisdom is his holy wisdom. God's power is holy power. There is no other attribute of God that is celebrated before the throne of heaven than is holiness. Holy, holy is prefixed to God's name more than any other attributes. Isaiah calls it 26 times nearly on holiness, on the holiness of God. And as we wind up, Jonathan Edwards said this, More than a mere attribute of God, it is the sum of all his attributes, the outshining of all that God is. When we speak of God's holiness, let me say this. In particular, God's holiness denotes the separateness of God from all his creation. To be holy is to be set apart. God has set us apart for himself. God's holiness also denotes his apartness from all that is unclean or evil. God's holiness denotes his purity. His holiness denotes his moral perfection. God's holiness denotes his separateness from all outside of him. And God's holiness denotes his complete absence of sin. And God says, now, be holy, because I am holy. And I will give you the help along the way. I have given you my Holy Spirit. I have sealed you with the Spirit. I have given you my word. And most of our friends, as we wind up this morning, living a holy life is living a satisfied life, a fulfilling life, a meaningful life, a life of joy, a life of peace a transformed life, a forgiven life. And also it opens the opportunity for evangelism. Because your friends see you and they see something different. And they ask you the question, Hey, hey that guy doesn't swear. That guy doesn't do this. Or that girl doesn't do this. What's, what's going on in your life? And you're able to say, Because I'm a Christian, <laughs> uh, my, my life belongs to God. And I want to honor Him. And so it opens a talk. And finally, this happens because when we trust in Jesus, we are made holy not because of our good works, not because of legalism, because of the worthy lamb. The worthy lamb gave his life on the cross to take a sinner like me and you and make us holy. To be acceptable in the Father's eyes. One day when we die, We will be with God in heaven because of the holiness that is ours in Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb.